My family and I had the pleasure of a visit with a dear friend of ours this past week. This young lady has just come back from language school in Switzerland where she was studying French in order to be able to return to West Africa to serve as a missionary there. She had been to this particular area of West Africa before, served there during, during, doing medical missions and aiding in their evangelistic efforts, having left her family in a good career in the States behind. During one of her shorter-term trips, she was involved in a motorcycle accident that left her with a broken jaw and a number of teeth missing. She had to return to the States eventually for additional care, but as soon as she was able to, made every effort to get herself healthy and prepare for her return back to Africa. And so she'll be returning back there in a couple of weeks. We also had the privilege of serving with another family of six in a previous church. We're now on the field serving as missionaries in that same part of West Africa. This family is also very dear to us. We've been close friends for years now. Both the husband and wife are medically trained, and they're actually serving in the same place this other young lady is now going. But they chose to leave their medical profession, successful medical profession, behind in order to reach the lost with the gospel and to serve in that medical area on the mission field. Over the course of their time serving as missionaries, they have had multiple children sick with various kinds of illnesses, as you can imagine, in, in a small remote town in West Africa, working in the context of and traveling through COVID and otherwise dealing with all manner of other medical issues peculiar to that part of the world, not to mention the heavy influence of Islam in that area. There are many other examples like this, stories of believers who've gone out for the sake of Christ, serving as what we would call missionaries, but simply doing what they've been professionally trained to do just in another culture, among another people group, and for the sake of the gospel. They've sacrificed, they've moved their families away from their homeland, they've endured great difficulties, but have chosen to remain precisely because the gospel is at stake. People like this inspire and encourage me. I find that the more I hear about people like this and others, the more I am convicted in areas where I can be doing more for Christ's sake. Who do you look to for inspiration and encouragement? For that matter, who do you seek to emulate? I am thankful for the people like those I mentioned who I have in my life to remind me of the kind of person that I would like to be for Christ's sake, but I'm also reminded that at times... I am drawn in by those who evoke a certain charisma and who appear to be successful in the world. We see people like Bill Gates, who will from time to time share little bits of wisdom and thousands of people flock to listen. And they flock to listen to the wisdom of Bill Gates precisely because he is successful in the eyes of the world. He built an empire. He has great personal wealth. So surely someone like him should be listened to. Or someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, for whom much of the same could be said. Perhaps not these, but another popular actor or actress who makes a speech during an award ceremony, condemning some politician or speaking out about some ideology they feel strongly about. It makes a headline news. So-and-so said this. Oh, you got to hear that. So-and-so said that. And we feel compelled to listen and to read. When you see or hear from these successful people, people who are successful in the eyes of the world, it's natural to want to listen to them, to see what they do, and perhaps to emulate them. 
In the back of your mind, you may not say this out loud, but the thought is that if they are successful and I listen to them and do what they did, then perhaps I'll be successful too. Well, ask again, who do you look to for inspiration and encouragement? Our passage for this morning reminds us that the kind of people that we as the children of God, as citizens of heaven, as Christ's church, ought to emulate. If you haven't turned to Philippians chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. We'll focus in on verses 10 through 30. That is incorrect. Now we're going to focus in on verses 19 through 30. My apologies. Here Paul is going to exhort the church to honor those who serve well. The underlying principle is that we honor those who serve well by imitating their faith. Let's take a look at this section again. Philippians chapter 2, again, verses 19 through 30. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father, thank you for your word, which is true. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Honor those who serve Christ well by imitating their faith. Paul references three in this section, two specifically called out by name, and himself by inference. He doesn't outrightly indicate himself as one who serves well, but I think that given all of what he said up to this point, it's clear that he offers his life as an example to the church. Nevertheless, the word of God offers these three as an example of those who serve well, of those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. A brief outline for the passage, just the the section itself, we see The example of Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. The example of Paul in chapter 2, verse 24. Really, the whole letter. And the example of Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. So we're going to look at Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus, and we'll think through how they exemplify this call to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, where have we been so far in this letter Again, Paul opened the letter in chapter 1, reminding them of his love for them, his care for them, in light of having, their having partnered with him in the gospel ministry. As I've said before, this was not an easy feat. There was no PayPal, no Zelle, no online bill pay, or even a bank on every corner from which they could 
help to support Paul. They had to work hard to maintain their relationship with him, to get to know how he was doing, to be able to physically support him. But they were faithful to do this, even though they did it out of their poverty at times. And this endeared them to Paul. We gave a brief report of his ministry situation in that first chapter, as they knew that he found himself in prison, Paul said the gospel's not in chains. The gospel's not in prison. He preached to others. Others were inspired by him to preach, so he rejoiced in all these things. And then he began to address some of their concerns by encouraging them in the Lord with the truth. He says, you are citizens of the kingdom, and so that requires commitment. It requires a certain kind of life, a certain kind of response to one another and the difficulties that we face in life. No, it is not easy, but you will have joy in the midst of it. Live as citizens of the kingdom. You have the mind of the king, the mind of Christ. Be humble with one another. Pursue unity through that humility. Exercise the mind of Christ that is yours in him. We looked at the section last week. We were reminded that our walking in a manner worthy of Christ, our working out our salvation with fear and trembling, requires that we be those who refuse to grumble and dispute. And those who refuse to grumble and dispute really shine as lights in the world because that's really what the world does. They grumble and they dispute with one another. We live in a dark world. We've been saved by the light. We have been made light in him. Thus, we ought to shine our light. Remembering that our response to the difficulties in this life There's a difference between that light shining or not. This is how the Lord reaches the world, through his work in us and through us. And I think that we thought through a number of ways to apply Paul's commands throughout. However, someone might still be asking Paul, what does that really look like? What does it look like in real life to walk in a manner worthy of Christ? What does it look like in real life to work out our salvation? And so in this section, Paul provides, again, those examples, those illustrations of those who serve Christ well. He says, do this, live this way, and in case there's any doubt, here are some examples for you. Let's look at the first example of Timothy in verses 19 through 23. Again, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Now, we know from other texts that Timothy was likely a convert of Paul during one of his missionary journeys. He refers to him as his true child in the faith. First Timothy 1, verse 2. It appears as though his mother and grandmother were faithful to the Jewish faith and that his mother was particularly noted as having faith in Christ in Acts chapter 16. If we look at 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says this to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Again, today we celebrate Mother's Day. This text is indicative of the kind of legacy a mother can have, not one where their children worship them or seek to appease them in every way, which is the way the world tends to describe our requirement, our duty to mothers. But it's not about that. But rather, the legacy that mothers ought to strive for is a legacy of rich faith, a legacy that leaves a lasting memory of faith 
in your children and those who know your children so that they can say with Paul, I am reminded of the sincere faith that was in your grandmother and your mother and I know is in you as well. Pray that that will be true for you all who have the privilege of being called mom. Well, Timothy was well spoken of by other believers in the city of Lystra. That's where Paul and Timothy initially met. On Paul's second missionary journey, Paul decided to take Timothy along. Having heard of Timothy's faith, having heard of Timothy's proven character in the city of Lystra. And so Timothy went along with Paul when he visited the church at Philippi, when he, when he visited the area of Philippi and founded the church there. So the people of Philippi would have been familiar with Timothy and Paul's relationship to him as they served together. Thus, Paul sending Timothy to Philippi would not have been a surprise to the church. In fact, Paul sent Timothy on a number of such missions, certainly here at Philippi, also to Thessalonica, and what appears to have been a longer stay at Ephesus, that's what prompted the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy. But even if he wasn't sent on his own, since he traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, Timothy's name is actually mentioned in a number of the letters that Paul wrote. In other words, Timothy was a valuable companion to Paul, well spoken of by those in his hometown, competent in the gospel ministry, and faithful to Paul. As he says in our text, he served with Paul as a son with a father. So when we get to this section in our letter, and Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, holds out these individuals as an example of faith to follow, it's no wonder that Timothy would be at the top of the list. Well, what is it about Timothy specifically? What characteristics do we see in the life of Timothy that would motivate Paul to hold him in such a high regard? Well, I think a number of things, really. I'll just mention three. First, he was a willing servant. Timothy was a willing servant. Again, in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered of news of you. Now, don't miss what Paul is saying here, that he is sending Timothy on a round trip. Timothy is being dispatched to go to Philippi and return from Philippi to let Paul know how things are going. This is not a one-way trip. Furthermore, Paul does, Timothy does not have access to the next flight out. There were no flights out. He doesn't have access to a motor vehicle. There was no Zoom, so he couldn't hold a Zoom meeting. <laughs> Timothy is going on foot or by means of whatever caravan was available. If we take the traditional view that Paul is now imprisoned in Rome, then a trip from Rome to Philippi would have taken him weeks. And maybe longer, depending on the route, the route and the conditions. So this was a commitment, but Timothy was up to the task. And all of the missionary journeys where Paul is traveling with Timothy, whenever see Timothy complain. John Mark was a bit of a complainer early in Paul's journeys, but we never hear anything of the sort from Timothy. We suspect that Timothy had somewhat of a timid personality based on some of the things that Paul says in his letters addressed to Timothy. But in spite of that, Timothy was willing to make the travel from Rome to Philippi to know how the church was doing and to return to Paul to let him know. Timothy had already left the comfort of his home and his mother, who was a faithful Christian, to travel with Paul. Traveling with Paul could not have been easy because it was Paul, right? I mean, that's just based on the persecution that he endured alone. And now, of course, Paul was sitting in prison and Timothy was there with him. There's no indication that Timothy was in prison, but he was there with him. He was there with Paul. There's no other reason he would have been there at the prison besides Paul. 
but he's spending time with Paul at prison, accompanying him so he wouldn't be alone. On top of that, now Timothy has to go back and bring word of this dear church. This was not an easy relationship to have, but Timothy was willing. I wonder how many of us would be so willing. How many of us would be so willing to leave the comforts of our own to go out into a world with some random guy who is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of us are so willing to take the message of the gospel to the lost ourselves? How many of us are so willing to leave the comforts of our home to go to church on Sunday morning to hear the word of God and to encourage other believers with our mutual faith? How many of us are willing to be inconvenienced to come out during the week to serve one another, to look for ways to do that? How many of us are willing to simply pick up the phone and call one another during the week and not just the people you like, but other people, perhaps someone you've never held a conversation with. How many of us are willing to do that? We're certainly willing for other people to reach out to us. And when other people don't reach out to us, we tend to grumble about that. But how many of us who are willing for others to reach out to us are willing to reach out to others to encourage them in the Lord? How many of us are willing to be inconvenienced. I'll read you this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks, as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think that they're doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and balked, but it is a part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand when we can perform a service that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. I like that last part. That we do not allow, we do not assume that our schedule is ours to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. I struggle with this personally because there are always things to do. There are always urgent matters that come up. People are always asking for things that need to be done. And so you do have to exercise wisdom when you're thinking about your schedule. But the fact of the matter is that we ought to be willing to be inconvenienced for the good of others. I think the reason why the old saying is true that there is perhaps 90% of the, 10% of the people doing 90% of the work when it comes to service in the church is because most of us are simply not willing to be inconvenienced. But Timothy was willing. He was willing to be inconvenienced. I would also add that this is regardless of your personality. Again, Timothy was likely more timid in variety. Paul encourages him in 2 Timothy that we have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. He spends a significant amount of time encouraging Timothy not to be ashamed. That must have been a struggle for Timothy on some level. In spite of that, we always see Timothy being willing to serve. I am an introvert. Some of you probably know that about me. So being up in front of people terrifies me 
as an individual. Uh, my personality does not tend toward this. But this is how God has gifted me, and so I want to do this. Like, I'm compelled to do it. I can't not do it. And I don't always do it well. I don't always do it perfectly. Um, but personality shouldn't rule us. What should rule us is our desire to be willing to serve the Lord Jesus. Amen. Timothy was a willing servant, but he's also a loving servant. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, we already talked about many times before that Paul was concerned for this church. He loved this dear group of believers. So he wanted to send someone who would echo that same love for and appreciation for this church in his words so that he could be cheered by news of them. He didn't want to send someone who would skimp on the details, in other words. He wanted someone who would go and not just take a cursory glance in return, but someone who would go and take the same care that he would if he were there personally. And that someone was Timothy. Paul says, in fact, I have no one like him. That's a striking statement. Of all the people that Paul knew, of all the people whom Paul worked with in ministry, he says of Timothy, I have no one like him. In other words, Timothy cares. He says he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He says Timothy really cares. He is legitimately concerned for your welfare. The words that Paul uses here are reminiscent of his words earlier in the chapter when he exhorted the believers to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Again, look each of you not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Timothy was more concerned for the church at Philippi than he was for his own self, his own comforts, his own wants. Moreover, he was more concerned for Paul's need to know about how the church was doing than his own comfort and rest. Again, Timothy cares for others. Christianity is not about us. I think we've said that many times before. I like this description of a missiologist that a missiologist gave of the church. A missiologist is someone who studies and is inclined towards missions and thinking about missions and how the church ought to be involved in missions. And so this, this person took a look at the church and Christianity, and this is what they said. I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally to self, my need for salvation. And God is auxiliary to that. They say, I also saw that a quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip, can become centered on me and my need of salvation and not in the glory of God. What a strange irony that the gospel could become an occasion for a profound self-absorption. We do live in an age of unprecedented self, of weightless souls consumed with their own gravity. And today, many Christians actually believe that it is Christian to pursue self-fulfillment as an ultimate goal in life. They say, I've witnessed this several times when I have sat listening to a preacher author up the common bromide, we cannot love others until we love ourselves, and have seen the congregation nod and murmur assent while I'm inwardly saying, no, what unbiblical foolishness. And that certainly is unbiblical foolishness. Their point is that often when we think about Christianity, we think about it in relation to ourselves as the center of everything. Christ died for me. The church is here for me. So when I go to church, or if I'm looking for a church, I need to find a church that, what, suits me. And where people come to serve me and build me up 
and make me feel like this is my best life now. Instead of approaching the faith and salvation as if God is the one who is in control and he is the one who is central. And I am here to serve at his whim. And I am here to serve the church and the people around me. And I know that God has gifted me in order to serve the church and the people around me. Christianity is not about us. God didn't rescue us from sin and deliver us into the kingdom of his beloved son unto ourselves. We've been rescued and delivered into a community for good works that involve other people. It's Ephesians 2.10. I wonder by what standard we measure our love for one another. Do we measure our love for and service to the church based on how the next person serves, the person next to us? Do we measure our love for the church, the exercise of our gifts based on what we've always done in the past? I've always done it this way, so I don't need to do anything else. I've always done this one thing in the church, so I don't need to do anything else. Do we set the limit of our expression of love in the body of Christ by what is in our best interest and what we are comfortable with? Or do we think in terms of what others need and what would glorify Christ? Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I could probably just stop there. Outdo one another in showing honor. People, some people can be very competitive, right? And they get excited about doing things that involve competition and playing games. And so, you, you know, you, that kind of comes out when you play with people in certain games and, or you see them vote rooting for their, own, their favorite sports team. People are very competitive uh, naturally. Paul says, compete on this. Outdo one another in love. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. He says, don't be lazy, but be fervent in spirit in serving one another, in loving one another. That idea of being fervent in spirit, the word conjures up the image of a boiling pot of water. When water is at its highest, it is its hottest boiling point, and you see the bubbles just constantly churning, that's what that fervency is. That's the kind of love that we ought to have for one another. That's the kind of fervency that we ought to pursue in our love for one another. Is that you? Are you fervently seeking to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a genuine concern for and their welfare? Does it move you to action, constant, intense, fervent action for them? In case we need any more clarification, remember that the love of God was demonstrated toward us. How? By Christ dying for us on the cross. That's what love looks like. It's a bloody cross. Timothy was a willing servant. He was a loving servant, but he was also a faithful servant. Look again at the text. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I know how it will go with me. Again, Timothy was a faithful servant. He was faithful both to Christ and to Paul. He says they seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Well, who they are is not real clear in this verse, but I think we'll get a better picture of them in chapter 3. At any rate, Paul is drawing a distinction between those who seek after their own interests 
and those who seek after the interests of Christ, and Timothy was the latter. Timothy knows what he's here for, in other words. He knew that he was not here on planet Earth to satisfy his own interests. He knew that he was here for Christ's sake, and Christ is concerned for his church. Thus, Timothy made it his pursuit in life, his greatest goal, to do whatever he could do for Christ's sake, for the church. Again, there's so much that could be said here, but the simple takeaway is to reflect upon our own interests. What are the things that you consider to be the most important in life? What are you pursuing in life? Where does the trajectory of your life lead you? Maybe consider where you spend the most of your time or what you spend the most of your time doing. For the Christian, for the citizen of heaven, the answer is that it has to be the church. This is what God is doing in the world, building his church. This is why he has saved you and how he has gifted you, why he has gifted you, so that you would be a part of building his church. How are you doing with pursuing the interests of Christ? Well, again, not only is Timothy faithful to Christ, but he also showed himself to be faithful to Paul. Again, for you know, he says, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he served with me in the gospel. And again, he says, you know, because Timothy was there in Philippi. They saw Timothy serving with Paul in the gospel ministry. They saw Timothy serving Paul as a son in the gospel ministry. They, of all people, would have known Timothy's proven worth. And it was a proven worth. Lots of people talk about their accomplishments and titles, right? They may have accomplishments in the past. They may have accomplishments in the world or titles that afford them significant recognition. But when it comes to ministry, what we look for is proven worth. That's what the pastoral epistle in 1 Timothy were reminded of such roles as deacon and elder, the need for a period of testing before they're recognized. There's this period of testing where they are, they ought to be just serving without the title. And so the point at which we get to recognizing someone as a deacon or an elder, it would be clear to everyone that that's what they're doing already. They're already serving. They don't need a title to serve. They're already shepherding and caring for the souls of others. They don't need a title for that. And so we're just recognizing what God is already doing in their lives. The question for us becomes, are you being faithful now? Are you striving to serve within the church faithfully now? Can you be counted on to serve? Do you need to be asked all the time, or will you step up and see how you can be a blessing to others without needing recognition? Will you step up and fulfill a role? Again, can you be counted on? Are people going to wonder if you're going to show up? Again, Paul concludes his thoughts on Timothy. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Timothy was being sent not only to get word to Paul of how the church was doing, but also to let them know of any updates of how he was doing after the letter was sent. This letter was likely sent by Epaphroditus, and Paul is saying, I'm going to send Timothy afterward, and he'll be able to let you know how I'm doing then. But again, we are to honor those who serve Christ well by imitating their faith. We just looked at Timothy's example. Let's take a quick look at Paul. I'll just mention a few things. I think we've talked significantly about Paul throughout this study. But look again at verse 24. Paul says, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I myself will come also. He just said earlier, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy. Now he says, I trust in the Lord. Paul was a trusting servant. I read, I read the passage from 2 Timothy last week, but there in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said in the context, discussing his suffering for the sake of the gospel, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day 
what has been entrusted to me. Paul trusted his Lord. He trusted his master. That isn't referring to the initial saving faith. This is referring to the goodness of God, trusting the goodness of God and his sovereignty as he controls the events of our lives. Paul says the one who called him, the one who saved him and set him apart as a preacher of the gospel was trustworthy. Thus, Paul trusted that God was able to keep both him and those whom he served. Earlier in chapter one, he says um, that God will be faithful to complete the work that he's begun in the Philippians. He says, I'm confident of that very thing. Again, Paul trusted the Lord. He didn't presume upon God. Certainly he knew, as we discussed again in chapter one, that it was likely it was possible for him to be released, but it was also possible that he could face death. Likewise, here he desires to send Timothy, but he knew that there were some circumstances that might prevent that in the sovereignty of God. But either way, he trusted in God. I wonder, do we trust in the sovereignty of God? We are called believers because we believe. We don't just believe once and stop believing, right? We keep believing. We keep trusting. We keep resting in the sovereignty of God even when life is difficult. Again, Paul was writing for prison. He could have complained and grown bitter, but instead he chose to view his stay in prison as a part of the sovereign plan of God to move the gospel forward. Thus, again, as I've said before, we don't see him just sitting there or grumbling and complaining. We see him still active, reaching out to others, even reaching out with the gospel. doesn't mean that we'll always like what God does. doesn't mean that we'll always understand what he does. It certainly doesn't mean that we'll be unaffected by what he does. Paul was clearly affected by his circumstances. He mentions earlier being hard-pressed between the desire to depart, to be with Christ, because that's better than sitting in prison and suffering persecution. Later in our text, he's going to refer to the sorrow that he had in prison in verse 27. When Epaphroditus became sick, Paul said, that God healed him and had mercy on him so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And he speaks of being anxious for the church. And in the book of, to, the, to the church at Corinth, he mentions his daily burden for all the churches. He experienced anxiety for this church, wondering how they were doing. And he says, for all the churches that I've been a part of, I experienced a daily concern for them. Paul felt he wasn't he wasn't unfeeling, unemotional. He was a human being. So he struggled with the things that he endured. But in spite of that, he still trusted the Lord. Being a trusting servant doesn't mean that you'll always like or understand or perfectly respond to everything that happens in accord with the sovereign will of God. But it does mean that you'll always remember that the moon is always full. Right? That God is always good. So Paul was a trusting servant, but he's also a giving servant. What do I mean by that? Well, again, what is Paul doing in this section? He's sending the people away who are with him. He could have desired to keep them, but he instead he chose to send them away. And he's sending them away precisely because he knows that it'll be good for the church. He's sending Epaphroditus, who was a member of the church and a minister to Paul from the church, with a letter to encourage this dear church. He's sending Timothy, who's proven worth and who served with him as a son serving with a father. 
Paul also gave of his time, his energy, his resources. He labored in prayer for this and many other churches. And he's desiring to dedicate himself for a visit as well. He says, I trust in the Lord that I myself will also come shortly. In other words, Paul says, even after I get out of prison, I'm not just going to go take a sabbatical. I probably would have just wanted to go home at that point. Right? Like you're sitting in prison, struggling, suffering. I'm ready to just go home and just take a couple weeks break. Paul says, I'm not going to do that because you need more than that. I'm going to go and do what is in your best interest, meaning I'm going to come to you to be an encouragement to you. But again, in this context, in the context of this section, we're exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be other-centered. That was Paul. Again, he could have been more concerned with himself for himself and his circumstances, but he was more concerned for the church. Now, just ask the question again, does that describe you? Are you quick to give to others even if it costs you something? Often we'll give to others out of our abundance, out of the overflow. As long as it doesn't cost me, I'm happy to give. But that's not what what Paul does here. He gives in spite of himself. He gives at cost to himself. Again, this is the kind of faith that we have been called to, trusting in God's will, giving of ourselves, knowing that, as Paul says at the end of Philippians, that God will supply all of our needs so we don't have to worry. But again, Paul was a trusting servant, a giving servant. Thirdly, he was a joyful servant. I've made this point time and time again. I just want to mention it again now. Over and over, we see Paul referring to his joy. Chapter 1, verse 4, giving thanks to God when I remember you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, he says to them, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It is clear that Paul took great joy in the faith of the Philippians. The fact that they had faith, the progress of their faith, their unity in the faith, Paul's ability to build up the faith by using his gifts to strengthen them, these things all brought Paul great joy. I mentioned this last week, but this is the joy that any of us can have as we serve faithfully in the body of Christ. Well, again, we've seen Timothy's example, Paul's example. Finally, we see Epaphroditus' example in verses 25 through 30. Look there with me again. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also me, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now certainly Epaphroditus exhibits many of the same qualities that we've already discussed. I'll just point out a couple that seem particularly apparent from his example. Epaphroditus was a trustworthy servant. 
Remember what he was sent for. Epaphroditus was sent as a messenger and minister from Philippi to Paul. He was sent to, as it says in verse 30, complete what was lacking in their service to Paul. In other words, Paul says plainly in chapter 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Epaphroditus was a bearer of a monetary gift to Paul, thus had to be trustworthy. He was sent with a gift, and unless he was independently wealthy, was also sent with enough to cover his own need for a lengthy journey. Epaphroditus was the kind of guy that you would like handling an offering. He was trustworthy. The church clearly had no problem sending him with a gift, and Paul confirmed that he got all of what he was supposed to get. We need people who are trustworthy. We need people who can be given a task, not only a task dealing with money, but any task, and we can trust them to carry it through to the end. Are you a trustworthy servant of Christ? Perhaps you can handle money, but he's given you so much more. Of all the things that the Lord Jesus has given, are you trustworthy? Are you exercising your gifts in particular faithfully? Well, Epaphroditus was a trustworthy servant, but also a sacrificial servant. Somewhere along the line, he became ill. Again, Paul says, indeed, he was ill near to death. Epaphroditus had a job to do. He embraced this job, the task that he was given by the church, and he performed it to the end at great cost to himself. He nearly died. Now, to be honest, how many times have you ever heard of someone nearly dying to serve Christ? Someone in our lifetime, someone in our nation, in our culture. Certainly, God is the one who determines our boundaries and times of habitation. He has sovereignly determined that we in this nature, in this culture, would enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. So it's not wrong that we don't face death daily. It's just not normal. The history of the church, the experience of most Christians in the world, is having an ever-looming threat of persecution. So doing something as simple as delivering a gift to a missionary in another region could very well cost someone, even today, their life. But Epaphroditus was sick and near death. That didn't really matter to him. He was zealous to complete what was lacking in the service of the Philippians to Paul. And not only that, but when he realized that they heard that he was sick, he wanted to get back to them, to comfort them, to encourage them. I think that's remarkable to me. Again, when I'm sick, I'm just thinking about getting better, right? Like how people can take care of me because I don't feel well. But Epaphroditus wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about the church because the church heard that he was sick. So he was earnest to get back to them. That's sacrificial service. Again, no cost is too great, not even my life when it comes to serving the church. And even if I should pay the ultimate price, even if my life is in danger, I just want to make sure that I carry out my responsibility and make sure that others are taken care of. That was Epaphroditus' desire. Now, again, by comparison, some of us struggle nowadays to simply get out of bed to come to church, right? That's our great struggle. A sacrifice is for us getting up, getting dressed, and coming. Or getting dressed and being engaged during service. Actually singing when it's time to sing songs. Actually joining in prayer, right? Actually listening to the whole sermon. Perhaps at some point during the gathering, actually interacting with someone who doesn't sit in your normal section of seats and looking for a way to encourage them. Those things are a struggle. But those things should be normal. 
I think the problem is that we often just don't see others as more important, as worth sacrificing for. That's why we don't engage. That's why we don't fervently serve. It's like that boiling pot of water. That's why we don't reach out, because deep down in our hearts, we feel that we are more important, that the family of God is just not worth the sacrifice. Maybe we think that we are more important and our needs and the things that are ailing us or the things that are hurting us are more important. And so we have an excuse not to engage. Or maybe we think that the deacons need to do it or the pastors need to do it. I don't need to do it. This text reminds us that if we are a member of Christ's church, if we're a citizen of heaven, these are the things that we ought to be doing. Sacrificial love ought to characterize us. Again, back in our text, Paul says, receive him in the Lord and honor such men. He'll say simply in chapter 3, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Honor such men, honor men like him who put their faith on display in such a God honoring way. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, Paul says. This is the same thing, but he prefaces it with imitate me. I think the principle is that we honor those who serve well, not by holding them up on a pedestal and worshiping them, but by walking in their steps and imitating their faith. That's the principle. That's the point. I read this quote. One author said, Epaphroditus represents a category of people who are to be honored. If we have read Paul correctly, it's not only the upfront people, those who are with more public gifts who are to be honored, but also those who, regardless of their gifts, live out the example of Christ. He says, by holding up Epaphroditus, Paul contradicted the Greco-Roman's culture and also our modern cultures rewarding those who seek prestige and position. This ought to lay the axe at those who define success in the evangelical community as a kind of lordship, sitting in the honored seat being the feted guests at luncheons, speaking to vast throngs, building monuments, naming buildings after ourselves, collecting honorary titles, end quote. Paul says, when you see those who serve Christ well, honor them. The church, particularly in our culture, has far too often relied on worldly means to identify those who are successful. As that quote indicated, those with the most letters behind their names from the best seminaries, those who speak well or charismatically, those who are out in front and speak with the most conviction, those who wrote the most books. We look to popular preachers and pastors. We flock to them when they come in town. We have them at the ready on our podcast apps. Unfortunately, some of us also look to those in the world who have great success as those whom we should honor and emulate. Paul says no. Christianity, being a Christian who lives worthy of the gospel, is not about professionalism or the celebrity culture. It's about those who have proven worth, those whose character reflects Christ and the effect of the gospel. These may be pastors, but are also missionaries and other gospel workers. These are deacons. These are faithful Sunday school teachers. These are those worthy of honor who willingly, lovingly, faithfully trust in the sovereignty of God, give to others, rejoice always, are trustworthy and sacrificial in their servant love for the church. These are those who have not said what's in it for me, but rather what's in it for Christ and his church. Paul says, look to them. Find encouragement and inspiration from them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Honor them. Keep your eyes on them and imitate their faith. May we encourage one another to be this 
kind of faithful, to be these kinds of people. May we encourage our children to be these kinds of people and to emulate the faith of these kinds of people. May we do this for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. Thank you again for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We pray, Father, that as we go now and um, take communion together, that you would remind us of our responsibility to one another, that you would remind us of our duty to one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to be concerned more for one another than for ourselves. Father, would you make the different character traits, the different characteristics that we saw in the lives of these brothers who've gone on before us, would you make these things true of us so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Would you do this for your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.